Uh, one last thing. Oh, sorry. It's all right. Um, the first week of class, I passed around an email list, and so we're sending an email, a uh, weekly email. Um, I failed to do that last week, so I know some of you may be here uh, for the first time today, or maybe your first time was last week. If you didn't sign up the first week and you'd like to receive an email, uh, you can write your, your name and email address on here. The original list is on subsequent pages, but if you're not on that original list, uh, be sure to add your name. All right, thanks. Nice. Brian. Yep. So I'm Brian Mansfield, and I think this is the first time I've ever taught a Sunday school class. Um, Turn on the recorders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I tend, just so you know, I tend to think by talking, and I write when I have something formed enough that I feel it's worth expressing. So I have some pretty detailed notes here, but it's also entirely possible that I will get some wild hair in my head as I'm rattling on and go. I'm as likely to go down a rabbit hole as anybody that brings up a comment today, which you should feel free to do. Um, so we're looking at chapter four, even though this is the third week. We have, at this point, we are at a new beginning for Israel. In fact, there are some things in here that reminded me of some of the other big beginnings in the Bible, and we'll look at that in a little bit. John, John 1, the creation story, I kind of see how this beginning for Israel ties into both of those things. We've gotten past the history, uh, the recounting of the history where Moses has brought everybody out of, or where the Lord has brought everybody out of Egypt. Um, the stories of the wandering, we've gotten past all of that. We are mostly past all of Moses's passive aggressive resentment over what's happened to him where he's going, the Lord was angry with me because of you guys. And we, we do still see that from time to time, but we've gotten past most of that. Uh, Moses probably feels like Israel, the people of Israel have cost him a third of his life wandering in the wilderness, because if, if, if you remember from some of your Sunday school classes as a child, his life was split into 40 year periods. The first 40 years got him ready. Uh, the first 40 years roughly was spent in Egypt. The second was spent in outside of Egypt and getting ready to, to lead Israel. And then those last 40 years wandering with the promise of the promised land kind of hanging over him and then realizing that he wasn't going to get to go into there. And Moses does not let Israel forget that they are the reasons that he's not getting the promise that he was. But he's, he's mistaken. It wasn't because of them. Right, but, 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 he, but he's, yeah. He's a little dishonest. I mean, yeah. your own self-analysis. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, but but if you read this, I mean, every chance he gets, he's like, yeah, yeah, so yeah, it's, it's like, Lord is angry with me because of you guys. You did this to me, and now I don't get to go in. Thanks a lot. But now we're starting to look at the future. Israel is right on the border of what is considered the heart of the Promised Land. He's, they've got a new generation. Moses is pretty much the last of his kind left, and he's getting ready to send a brand new people into a brand new land for a brand new start. We're getting ready to get to the covenant between God and the people who will take possession of the promised land. We're getting ready to see what God wants a community of his to look like. 
And as we look for what we can take for this, as we go through this class, let's keep this in the back of our mind. And I'm gonna write this on the board so you can just kind of keep it in your minds as we go through it. If I can find a pen that works, that's two. All right, and that's what could this look like now? So I. Oh, is it really? Okay. Well, <laughs> well, this side of the room can look can look at it, but this is this is the best I got. Anyway, what what could this look like now? We're going to get lots of we're going to get lots of instructions. We're going to get lots of laws. Some of them will make perfect sense to us. Some of them will seem totally random. But what we need to look at is the concepts and the themes and the ideas underlying these laws to see what it could look like in our community in this time and in this place. Because there, there are a lot of differences in the community of Israel and the community that we find ourselves in. Um, what, what, are, what are some of the differences between then and now? Obviously, then is a long time ago, now is where we are now, but what else? Cross, okay, good. But just and just in terms of the, the 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 physical and the geographical and the cultural differences, what what kinds of things are we looking at? Been in tents. Right, yeah. You've got you've got a nomadic, a very rural community versus us, where we are more. We are able to move wider and faster, but we tend to be more in place than Israel was. Technology is a huge difference. What else? Cultural differences. Cultural differences. Yeah, you're looking Middle East versus Western. Right. Cultures. Yeah. So I mean, they've got they've got very different ways of looking at the world and being in the world than we do. Israel is essentially a theocracy where the same where the civil rulers are also the religious leaders. By contrast, we're in a religious community that is part of a larger civil community. So we just we have different ways of interacting with the people around us. Um, in in the first three chapters, we've seen you go. God has told the people you go through this land, and you pay them for what you use. You don't take advantage of them. You don't cause trouble. But there's not a lot of interaction beyond that on a day-to-day -day basis the way that we have because we're all mixed in together they were kind of separate you got one tribe here in this place you got one tribe here in this place you got one tribe here in this place and there's not nearly as much overlapping on a day-to-day -day basis as we have they were in a hostile environment everybody was looking to knock them off oh wait maybe that's true today <laughs> <laughs> all right so Moses is under, Mo, this, this chapter is basically Moses introducing the laws that are coming and the laws themselves actually start in chapter 5. The laws are being given so Israel can take possession of the land so they can receive the promise that they've been given. So that Israel and by extension God will be admired by the people in all of these other tribes, by the hostile nations because God says these laws work. These are the things that will make you have a good life. This will, have, this, this will make the community be what I want it to be. This will 
these laws will help you be the people that do what I need to have done in the world. And then also, so Israel and the generations that follow them will revere God. The most fascinating of those to me is the notion of being admired by the people around them. And that's in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 4. It says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? It's, it, it, to, to me, the other thing that jumps out at me is that the people speak to God through their prayers and God speaks back to his people through the law. So there's, there's this idea that God in some way resides in those laws and those, the, the laws and living within the scope of those laws brings God closer to the people and the people closer to God. So Israel now, as, as we said, is surrounded by other tribes. They've got the Moabites and the Ammonites. I think they're taking over the, where the Amorites are, but there's all of these other tribes with other identities and with other gods. And Israel is right in the middle of all of them. The idea is that the adherence to God's plans for Israel's community will make everybody else look at them and go, what a wise and understanding people. Wow, and, and what, a, what a wise and understanding God by extension. And we're kind of in a similar situation these days because it's, it's a more cosmopolitan situation. Like I said, we're kind of all mixed in, Steve. Okay. Um, but everybody's got their own tribe that they identify as. For some, it's religion. For other people, it's, uh, it's politics. You know, they, they identify as Republican. They identify as Democrat, as conservative, as liberal. For others, it may be ethnicity or gender or sexuality or, you know, self-identify with the Enneagram, any number of any number of things that we identify with. This is, this is very much a time of thinking of yourself in terms of your identity. And one of the inherent problems with tribes, with identity politics, uh, is that people have to be in or out. Identity politics don't leave a lot of room for commonality and compromise. And that was the case in Israel. In Israel, you were part of the tribe or you were not part of the tribe. There wasn't any really being halfway in the tribe and kind of coming in and going out and making it as, as you were comfortable. You were either part of that tribe or you were not. And I think, but in the, in the way God wanted his people, God wanted other people to look at his people was as wise and understanding. So here's the question. Do people who identify as something other than us look at us and think those folks know what they're doing? 
they've got wisdom, they get how to do this. Is that how people look at us now? I think it's the opposite. I think it is too. And so if, if they don't look at us that way, why don't they look at us that way? And I'm looking for suggestions here. This isn't a rhetorical question. In a couple of different ways. Uh, I mean, broadly as Christian, uh, with, within the play, as, as Christian within the place that this class and this congregation finds itself. So, so, broad, so it, 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 can, it can be as broadly as Christian or as narrowly as Otter Creek. Right. I, I think this makes a difference. I, I, I think it does too, although I would say that at some level, small us, it has some responsibility for changing the image of large us if those two answers are different. So, yes? Right. And, and, and I, think, I think that's very important. That's, that's kind of one of the main points that, that I got out of reading this chapter is that, the vi that God's vision for this is that kind of unified community. And, I, and I, think, I think that is both more important today in the situation that we find ourselves in where, where we really are mixed in with everybody else. But it's, it's, it's maybe even more difficult to do now. I, th I think that's one of the challenges that as we're, man, that is invisible, as, as we're looking at what, what we could look like, what this could look like now is, is much harder for us to do than it might have been for Israel because Israel had in some ways the luxury of being set apart as a separate government, as a separate uh, almost a separate ethnicity in a separate place. It was it was easier to look different and look unified than it, it may be for us, kind of all mixed together with everybody else. Right. Yes. I just want to apologize for those who are going to second service, but I thought Walter's sermon was just awesome. Yes.
model and preach what we all need to do in terms of that practical reaching out, mm-hmm. whether it's across generations or ethnicities or interests. Uh, to, to those in the very same pew where we may have some help or something tangible to give something. Yeah. That, I think that's how this church or any church yeah. I, I agree completely. I agree completely. I went to first service, and as he got to the end of his sermon today, I was like, "This is exact. What he's doing is exactly what I would want." If I were listing things on the board, I would just list. I just write down the end of his sermon I, because he, he was he's going with that sermon exactly where I would want to take this from beyond today. The next thing that Moses tells the people that comes from God is that idols are forbidden. And that's in verses 16 through 19. It says, Do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. And I hadn't thought about idols in a long time, and I've really only had two, uh, two basic ideas put into my head about idols when I was in classes where they got dealt with. And the first one was you don't, you know, you don't make the statues, you don't, you don't bow down to the golden calf. It was, it was very much don't have idols. You know, that's, I mean, that's the, it's like you're, you worship God, you don't worship other gods, you don't worship other idols. The, the, the second one that I guess came along around high school for me was the idea that anything that supplants God as your primary object of devotion can be an idol to you. And, and I think that's very helpful, um, but it's, it, I think it also obscures a more elemental idea that God's trying to get across here. Uh, because I think I think there's something important about the physical nature of what God's saying. Don't do this. Um, if you go back a few verses in the chapter, in verses 10 through 12, look at how God's described. He's described as a a bright fire that blazes to the heavens, as black clouds and deep darkness, as only as the voice of God, and then it says. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. And, and that, I think, is important. So this, this isn't a God that you can set in three dimensions. You can't wrap your arms around it. You can't fix it in any one place. It's a fire which, if you look at it, you think you can see a fire, but, but the closer you look at it, the harder it is to really get a bead on it. And it's certainly not something that you can grab in your hands and pick up and possess. But at the, and at the same time that it's this bright fire, it's also the darkness of a cloud. And if you look at a cloud from a distance, a cloud looks like it has 
some form and some substance, but if you get into the middle of it, it's not that way at all. It's neither one of those things are quite what you think they are just from looking at them. This uh, the thing about this is this week and reading it. Here's another consequence of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Apparently, there they walked and talked yep. with him. They had a personal relationship they could see and experience him. After they were put out of the garden, we are now relegated to having to accept this and build this in our faith. The old King James, the substance of things hoped for, the yeah. evidence of things not seen. We're, we haven't seen it, but we have to use all of this to come up with this idea that he is real and that he is, he is our father. Um, but I, you do, you know, it puts it to the test. Yeah, it really does. It, it's a, for them, and they, they saw, they heard a voice, they saw something, but they didn't see the real thing. And uh, we're reading this to try to build our faith. But when restoration occurs, I, you know, I look forward to seeing God and being able to talk with Him yeah. uh, in person. I mean, this, this, this always kind of reminds me of the story of the, the blind man, the blind men and the elephant, where everybody's feeling some little part of it. And, and, None of them can piece together exactly what they're looking at, but but this is even one step back from that because you don't you don't even have something that you can feel. In fact, you are specifically prohibited not to have something that you can feel and don't make something that you can touch. Um, but and and the, um, the 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 mentions of the voice of God reminded me of. John 1 where it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God I think that's the same notion that we're seeing here that God is trying to drive this point home you heard my voice and you saw no form and it's 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 the concept of God is the word you, you hear that voice but you don't see his form and this also ties into what we saw about the, the prayers of the people and the laws that God gives back to them. The laws are being given to them orally. They're being told to tell to pass these on to your children and to your children's children. It, in the same way that God is a voice, the law comes to them in the words. And there's that connection again in all of that. God has a special relationship with these people through the words, the words of the law. Um, there's a book that was very popular a few years ago called The Year of Living Biblically, where a guy tried to, to read all of the, to keep all of the laws of the Old Testament to take a very conservative, uh, ultra-conservative, uh, legalistic approach to the laws and live that way now. And, and he got into this notion of the idols and the images and the words. Uh, his name is A.J. Jacobs, and this is what he says. He says, I think there's something to the idea that the divine dwells more easily in text than in images. Text allows for more abstract thought, more of a separation between you and the physical world, more room for you and God to meet in the middle. I find it hard enough to conceive of an infinite being if those original scrolls came in the form of a graphic novel with pictures of the Lord, I'd never come close to communing with the divine. 
The Bible is right. A deluge of images does encourage idolatry. And I go back to when I was five and six and eight and thinking about people worshiping some statue that they had or thinking that this calf made of metal was actually doing something for them. And, and I, don't, I don't think it's, it's that simple. I, I, and I don't think now that people, just because they lived a long time ago, were stupid enough to think that a cow, a statue of a cow was going to do something for them. But whatever, whatever you have that represents God to you takes on some aspects of God. It becomes more special if for no other reason than you associate it with God. I'll show you what I mean. I have this box, and I'm guessing that you haven't spent any time thinking about this box so far because it's just been sitting over there. It's just a box. Um, what this is, is a bar set. And I don't drink, never use the bar set, um, but this bar set is very special to me because it belonged to Phil Everly of the Everly Brothers. And um, we, uh, a friend of mine got it for me at an estate sale that his family was having after he passed away. And my parents, when my parents were dating, their song was All I Have to Do is Dream. And so I grew up listening to that song. My, my mother tells um, stories about my dad, uh, going out with my dad and being in the car and he would just push the buttons on the radio until he found All I Have to Do is Dream so they could listen to the Everly Brothers singing All I Have to Do is Dream. When I was in college, I worked as an usher at a concert venue and the Everly Brothers came and played. It's the only time I ever got to see them live and I was thrilled because I grew up listening to the Everly Brothers. And so I got uh, paired um, in my aisle with this really cute girl. And I'm telling her this story and I'm going, and they're gonna sing All I Have to Do is Dream, and it was my parents' song, and now it's gonna be our song. And so I'm like hitting on this girl hard all night. This is not Nancy, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm hitting on this girl hard all night. And so, and she goes out with me, and we date for the rest of the time that I'm at college. And so even though I never met Phil Everly. Um, well, first of all, I don't think this box is Phil Everly. This bar set is not Phil Everly. But, and I never met Phil Everly, but every time I see this box, I th think of the Everly brothers, and I think of my parents' story, and I think of that girl from college, and I think of all that music that I love, and I've never taken any of these out because I have no use for them. They don't do anything for me, but I love this Phil Everly bar set. <laughs> and that's what happens with idols, with physical idols, is that you attribute aspects of your God to that idol. They, it becomes special to you. You associate it with your family. Maybe it's something that passes through the family from one generation to the next and it starts accruing all of these things that are special about it even though it can't do anything. But... Isn't there, isn't there just 
just a, a, a slight difference in the idol versus graven image. Look at the Ten Commandments. Uh, you can have an idol without necessarily having an image. Yes. But if you really, like, like Aaron said, when he did the calf, he said, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. In other words, it became a physical representation. Yeah. And God is saying, don't have an idol, but also don't have any image. Don't conjure up an image of what I look like. Right. Right. And there's a reason for that, because there is, you're, you're absolutely right, it's, it's, it is both of those, and I'm kind of focusing on just one side of those. And, and the reason is, because there is one created image that God allows to represent himself. Any thoughts on that? No? Yes, but it's man. Yeah, yeah, we're in the image of God. And that's, and, and that's where we get back to community with this. Because all of those things that, you that if you were looking at the graven image and, and you were attributing to that all of those special things, those are the things that we're supposed to be seeing when we look at other people and, we look, and when we look at ourselves. And that's why you don't put it, you don't, you don't give those things over to something that can't do anything. But if you're looking at yourself as being a, represent, a representation or a representative of God, you think of yourself as more special than you might if it's all outside the community. If you look at other people, then they become more special to you, especially if they are different from you, especially if they are being mistreated by other people, especially if they are poor or disadvantaged in some way. When, that, when that's happening to people and you are looking at people as representations of God, that's happening to God and you need to do something about that. Bill? Part of this also, you're talking about what it would look like. They're about to go into this land. And in real life, the images he's talking about, what they were thinking about are Baal and the fish god that's blessed. Right. They actually already existed. And so one of the issues here is to be different. Yep. That once you start doing it, he says later, you know, if you start worshiping these things, I'm going to scatter you and you're going to be destroyed. Part of it is you're going to lose your identity and you're going to, you're going to become, uh, you're going to have trouble separating yourselves from the, from the ones around you. Right. And that was one of the issues that Israel didn't, in fact, have later on when they would kind of co-opt some of the other religions and the idols and so forth. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's one of the things that makes Israel look different when they've got their act together. It's certainly one of the things that God wants to make them look different is that this is, this is about a community of people working together to be the instrument of God in the world. And when, when that's firing on all cylinders, it looks really different from the people that are worshiping the fish god or the people that are worshiping some Baal. Um, it's just, it's, it's a very different thing. And so that's, and, and that's where I want to get back to what could this look like today? And you know, when, 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 do, when do we tend to Make those, make those idols for ourselves, whether they're graven or images or whether they are just things that we follow instead of God. 
and what does it look like when we're making it work? Or when we co-opt stuff from other groups just to be like them the Exactly. Um, so that's that's where we are as we get ready as, as Israel gets ready to walk into the land. Like I said, the laws are really going to start in in the next chapter, and that's 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 where we get the the specifics. One of the things that's that's I just honestly can't figure out about this chapter is Moses gives this whole speech about. Um, about the laws that he's about to give and about the idols and about the voice of God. And then the first thing that happens at the end of the chapter, the first thing Moses actually does is he sets aside three cities of refuge. Is that, so we, we, we come out of all of this and he goes, then Moses set aside three cities east of the Jordan to which anyone who had killed a person could flee if he had unintentionally killed his neighbor without malice aforethought. He could flee into one of these cities and save his life. The cities were these, Bezer in the desert plateau for the Reubenites, Ramoth and Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan and Bashan for the Manassites. Now, I think it's, I, I think it's worth noting that these, kill, that these cities were not for people who had killed out of, uh, out of violence or premeditation or um, because these people, we're not talking about people who didn't get along or who set out to kill somebody else. Uh, I'm guessing that this is more along the lines of someone who accidentally kills a person during the course of work. I mean, these, these are dangerous times, I think much more dangerous than, than we tend to realize in an era where we have uh, safety helmets and lots of regulations and technology that takes a lot of the 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 hand-to-hand -hand danger off of our hands. But 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 I think I think it's 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 more it's more yeah it's 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 more what we think of as a, a vehicular accident or you know people I mean they're they're building buildings but they're building them by hands they're not building them with cranes and so if something drops it's a lot more likely to drop on you um, and I can see why. It would be a good idea for a community like that to just put those families in separate cities. That the the family of the person who accidentally killed somebody, the family the family of the victim is going to have a really hard time getting along with them, even if there wasn't any intent, even if there wasn't any law that was broken or sin that was committed that resulted in this. It's just. It's hard, you know, if, if you killed my brother, it's gonna be hard for me to look at you no matter how it happened. And so I, I, I think it's a great idea that they just say, we'll put you in separate cities and that's how we, that's how we deal with this. I have no idea why this is the first thing that they say Moses did. Um, I don't know if he's just wrapping things up, um, but I it's just- it, it really is. Yeah, and but but why? I mean, because we, we, we deal with the cities of refuge later in, in in more detail in the book. But why all of a sudden we finish one speech and go? Oh, by the way, he set up these three cities so that people who accidentally killed each other could go there. 
or not killed each other, but you know what I mean. Uh, it, is, it is kind of a reminder, though. If you put this many people together, yeah. you have a lot of, of issues that come up. Right. I mean, things happen. You're on my guard. You're in my yard. Get out of my yard. Your animal trampled on my crop. Uh, you're, you're, you ran over and killed my, you know, that many people together in a confined space. A lot of things happen. Yeah. Some practicalities. Yeah. yeah like you said. Why is that there? That yeah, and I don't know why this particular thing, but I, but I do think that we should give it some weight because it is the first thing that they say. Um, that's pretty much what I have for today. I think we're a little bit early, but if there are comments or questions or discussion since I've been... Yeah. It was intentional. That's a good point. I, I hadn't even thought of that, but that that makes absolute sense that that would be something that would be primary on Moses's mind because that's that's one of the things that started this whole thing for him is because. Because the very start of the story that we know, he had nothing to do with that because he was just floating in a basket down the river. Um, but that's really what set this whole story in motion for him was that he kills the slave driver, he runs off, finds a place of refuge, that's where he encounters God in the bush and that sets off the whole story. So that's true. It is. It is kind of a at the very least, a, a nod back to something that would have been very formative for him.
Absolutely. And I think that's a great place to stop. Thank you very much. Thanks.